Two weeks ago, we dared to tread upon holy ground. Through the wonder of holy scripture, we were transported into one of the most emotional, dreadful, horrifyingly beautiful scenes in human history. It happened on a moonlit olive grove surrounded by an old stone wall situated at the foot of the Mount of Olives. A small group of about eight men sat near the entrance, some talking in a soft voice, others dozing off in the still darkness. A little further in were three more men reclined against the trunk of an olive tree, fast asleep. And a stone's throw away from them, staggering under the weight of some enormous burden before collapsing to the ground, is the Son of Man. His eyes bloodshot, his pulse racing, his hair and beard matted with a mixture of sweat and blood and dirt and tears as he endures a degree of emotional duress such as no man has ever known. He cries out in anguish of soul, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. And over and over and over again he prays and he pleads and he digs his fingers into the stony soil until they bleed. As he looks ahead at the next 12 hours, it is not death which he fears, nor is it pain. He does not fear the fists, nor the whip, nor the scourge, nor the thorns, nor the nails, nor the cross. It is something else that has struck his heart with this dreadful terror. As he looks ahead, it is as if he is staring into the abyss of hell itself. All of God's wrath against man's sin, against all of the depravity and all of the vileness and all of the iniquity which has ever infected the heart of men is about to be unleashed upon the substitute. The Holy One of God will become in the judgment of God an accursed thing. He will become in the eyes of God an abomination. The Son of Heaven will endure hell utterly forsaken by the Father. And the very thought of that nearly crushes him. The soul of the Son of Man resists that thought with every fiber of his holy being. This was the temptation which faced the second Adam in the Garden of Eden. It was the will of the Father that the Son drink the cup of wrath in the place of sinners. And in that moment, in the still darkness of the Garden, eternity hung in the balance. The eternal destiny of millions was at stake. The first Adam in the first garden said, not thy will, but my will be done. And all humanity was plunged into ruin and destruction. But if the second Adam would say, not my will, but thy will be done, then a new humanity would be redeemed from that ruin and that destruction for everlasting blessing and life. And that is just what Jesus did. 
He submitted to the will of his father. He overcame that last and greatest temptation, and thereby he won our redemption, fulfilling the covenant of works and mediating the covenant of grace. With the battle won, the moment of temptation passed, Jesus stood up, he brushed off his robe, and he went off to face his destiny. In the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus submitted his will to the will of the Father, and he resigned himself to the role of the suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And that is precisely the way Mark seems to cast the events at the end of chapter 14 and into chapter 15. In Isaiah 53, Isaiah says of the servant of the Lord, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. By oppression and judgment he was taken away. And as for his generation, who considered that he was cut off from the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people? In today's passage, we're going to see the Son of Man being led like a lamb to the slaughter. We will see him oppressed. We'll see him afflicted. We will see him taken away by oppression and judgment and the gross miscarriage of justice. And no one but himself will be aware that he is being cut off from the land of the living and stricken for the transgression of his people. But because of the battle that was already won in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus will face all of this with a resolute determination. Like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, he will open not his mouth. Jesus is the silent suffering servant of Isaiah 53. And in today's message, we will see him betrayed, abandoned, tried, and denied. After the third time that Jesus went away to pray in the garden, he came back and he found his disciples again fast asleep. Mark 14, verse 41, Jesus says, Are you still sleeping and taking your rest? It is enough. The hour has come. The Son of Man is betrayed into the hands of sinners. Rise, let us be going. See, my betrayer is at hand. While Jesus has been praying in the Garden of Gethsemane, a mob comprised of Jewish authorities and temple officers, as we read in Luke 22, were gathering inside the walls of the city preparing for the arrest. At their head was Judas, the betrayer. And it must have been an eerie sight that night as the detachment made their way out of the city and across the Kidron Valley, their torches snaking their way through the dark, the firelight glimmering off of the metal of their shields and their armor. The moment of betrayal was at hand. Verse 43. And immediately while he was speaking, Judas came, one of the twelve, And with him a crowd with swords and clubs from the chief priests and the scribes and the elders. Now the betrayer had given them a sign saying, The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when he came, he went up to him at once and said, Rabbi, and he kissed him. And they laid hands on him and seized him. But one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. 
And Jesus said to them, have you come out against me as against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching and you did not seize me, but let the scriptures be fulfilled. And they all left him and fled. Now as we consider the betrayal of Jesus, I want us to make two observations from these verses. First, I want you to note the vicious nature of Judas's betrayal. Sometimes, whether it's in movies or maybe just our imagination or maybe some uncritical retelling of the Easter story, Judas can be portrayed as the victim of circumstance. Judas is not the victim of circumstance. He is not the victim of anything. This was a premeditated, hateful, vengeful act. I want you to remember, it was not the religious leaders who sought out Judas. Rather, it was Judas who sought out the religious leaders and a way to betray Jesus. Let your eyes run up the page to chapter 14 and verse 10. Then Judas Iscariot, who was one of the twelve, went to the chief priests in order to betray him to them. And when they heard it, they were glad and promised to give him money. And he sought an opportunity to betray him. And when the night of the arrest actually arrived, it was Judas who led the way, according to Luke twenty-two forty-seven. 47. He's out front. He's leading this band that is coming to arrest Jesus. He knew where Jesus would be. He would either be in Bethany where he was spending every night or he would be in the Garden of Gethsemane which was on the way to Bethany where Jesus would often stop and pray with his disciples. If Jesus decided to stop off and pray as he frequently did according to John 18.2, Judas knew where he would be. Now, evidently Jesus was not widely known by his physical appearance to most in this crowd because Judas had prearranged a signal by which he would be able to indicate Jesus to the officers and distinguish him from the rest of his disciples. The one I will kiss is the man. Seize him and lead him away under guard. And when Judas, whom Mark scornfully calls the betrayer, in verse 44, arrived and found Jesus in the garden with his disciples, he wasted no time. He goes right up to Jesus, he greets him with a title of honor, Rabbi, and he kissed him. Now, the honorific title and the kiss of greeting would have been bad enough, but it's the manner in which Judas kissed him which is sickening. It doesn't come across in the English translation, but the word that Mark uses for kissed means to kiss lavishly, passionately. In other words, Judas is putting on quite the show. He's playing his part with flair, and in doing so, he's making a mockery of Jesus in front of the crowd. He appears, if it's even possible, to be having fun with the whole thing. And it begs the question, how did it get to this point? How did it come to this? Where does this this hatred, this viciousness come from? Well, I mentioned in a sermon a few weeks back that it appears that Judas 
had increasingly become eaten up with disillusionment when it came to Jesus. Judas had been initially attracted to Jesus because of the obvious power and authority which he yielded. Jesus had even imbued his disciples, Judas included, with a measure of that power and authority when he had sent them out to preach the gospel and to heal the sick and to cast out demons among the cities of Galilee. But as time went on, it seems to have become increasingly clear to Judas that Jesus had no, men, or no intention rather, of exercising that power and authority to mount a rebellion against Rome and to establish his kingdom in Jerusalem. Judas spoke the language of power and authority. That was his heart language. What he didn't speak was the language of service and suffering. And so Judas became disillusioned with Jesus and determined that he had been sold a false bill of goods. He'd never signed up for this life of self-denial and service and cross-bearing. So he jumped ship while there was still time. Disillusionment is a very, very powerful force. So take care that you know the biblical Jesus and not a Jesus of your own invention. Take care that you count the cost of following him, lest you find yourself at the same crossroads Judas did. The crossroads between suffering with Jesus, suffering for Jesus, and selling out Jesus. What is the end of each road? Suffering for Christ leads to everlasting glory, while selling Christ out leads to everlasting shame and regret and ruin and destruction, which is so vividly illustrated in the life of Judas, especially in Matthew's gospel, when Matthew writes that Judas tried, when regret hit him, to return the money that he had taken from the Sanhedrin, saying, I've sinned by betraying innocent blood, but by that point it was too late. So he threw the 30 pieces of silver on the floor of the temple, and he went out and he hung himself. That's the end of disillusionment. We had a very practical example of this choice laid before us this morning in Bailey's testimony. What would it have been like if Bailey had imagined that he was following a Jesus who promised him that nothing bad would ever happen to him, that his children would grow up and that they would prosper and that they would go on to lead long and prosperous lives? What if he hadn't known that Jesus promises trials and tribulations and tragedies and suffering, but that our call is to persevere through them all? Disillusionment would have set in just like it did with Judas. Thank God Bailey knows the biblical Jesus. And I encourage you to know the same. There's a second observation of which I want you to take note. I want you to see the steadfast determination of Jesus to fulfill the Father's will. In other words, when the battle in Gethsemane was won, Jesus was resolute in his purpose and he would not be deterred. When the officers laid their hands on him to arrest him, Mark says that one of those who stood by drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest and cut off his ear. 
Luke gives us a little bit more detail and says that when all of the disciples saw that Jesus was about to be arrested, they asked, Lord, shall we strike with the sword? And then one of them actually struck out at the high priest's servant and severed his ear, but that Jesus touched his ear and healed it. John then goes a little bit further and tells us that it was Peter who struck the servant of the high priest and that his name was Malchus. Evidently, then, Peter was aiming to split Malchus's head wide open, but the sword glanced off the man's helmet and, and slid down and sliced off his ear. But what I find interesting is Jesus' response to this ill-conceived attempt to prevent the arrest. According to Mark, Jesus responded, verse 48, by saying, Have you come out against a robber with swords and clubs to capture me? Day after day I was with you in the temple teaching, and you did not seize me. And look at the last phrase. But let the scriptures be fulfilled. The scripture that Jesus seems to have in mind, I would suggest, is the suffering servant passage from Isaiah 53. Where Isaiah prophesies that the servant of the Lord will be numbered among the transgressors. Isaiah 53, 12. Jesus is determined to fulfill that role that has been handed to him. He's determined to fulfill the will of the Lord as revealed in the Holy Scriptures. According to Matthew, when the disciple drew his sword and cut off the ear of the servant of the high priest, Jesus responded by saying, Put your sword back into its place, for all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you not think that I cannot appeal to my Father and he will at once send me more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? Jesus' driving aim from the victory in the Garden of Gethsemane onward is to fulfill the scriptures, to fulfill the will of the Lord. And according to John, Jesus said to Peter, put your sword into its sheath. Shall I not drink the cup that the Father has given me? So do you see it? The battle of wills is won. The temptation is over. Jesus has conquered. And he is now determined to see the Father's plan of redemption through to the end. Judas's betrayal and Jesus's arrest are not going to thwart that plan. They are that plan. Verse 50 then ends the account of Jesus's betrayal on an ominous and tragic but not unsurprising note, for Jesus had told us that it would be so. And they all left him and they fled. Then in verse 51, Mark provides us with a rather Strange narrative. He says that a young man followed him with nothing but a linen cloth about his body. And they seized him, but he left the linen cloth and ran away naked. From the early church on, the most common suggestion for the identity of this unnamed young man is that it is Mark himself. There's two reasons for this speculation. Number one, Mark is the only evangelist to record this story in his gospel, which seems to suggest that he had firsthand knowledge of the event. And secondly, it's commonly assumed, and I think correctly assumed, that the Passover meal which Jesus ate with his disciples 
occurred in the upper room of the home of Mark's family. This is based upon the fact that Mark's family's home became a prominent meeting place for the early church. We find this out in Acts chapter 12 and verse 12. The fine linen garment which was left behind indicates that it belonged to a young man from a wealthy family. Only wealthy families could afford fine linen. And Mark's family was certainly wealthy to have such a large home inside the city. Apparently, Mark then had been tagging along, probably surreptitiously, sneaking around from a distance as kids are wont to do. But when he found himself caught up in events that were bigger than he had bargained for, he was overcome by fear and he fled. So I imagine Mark peering over the stone wall of the olive grove that is the Garden of Gethsemane and watching the arrest take place and then suddenly behind him a couple of soldiers surprise him and they lay hold on him and he does what instinct tells him to do and he just bolts. Kind of like Joseph just leaving behind his garment and he takes off and he runs back towards the city. wonder what the conversation was with his dad when he came home but I have to leave that for another time. At any rate, the story is included to emphasize a point. It's not haphazard. It emphasizes a point that all abandoned Jesus, from the most timid teenager to the most stalwart disciple. None of them could handle the heat of the moment. They all fled in fear just as Jesus had predicted. Chapter 14 and verse 27, you will all fall away for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus will face the coming ordeal utterly alone. There will be none to stand by his side. Betrayed by one disciple, abandoned by the rest, denied by his closest friends and eventually forsaken even by his father. This was the price of redemption And Jesus willingly paid it. In the next section, Mark describes Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin, a trial which represents a terrible miscarriage of justice and results in the murder of the Son of God. Verse 53, And they led Jesus to the high priest, and all the chief priests and elders and scribes came together. And Peter had followed him at a distance, right into the courtyard of the high priest. And he was sitting with the guards and warming himself at the fire. Now John informs us that the high priest's name was Caiaphas. And interestingly enough, we know with a fair degree of certainty the location of Caiaphas's home where this trial took place, even though the customary location for Sanhedrin trials was inside the temple complex in a place called the Chamber of Hewn Stone north of the temple sanctuary. Caiaphas' villa lay about a kilometer southwest of Gethsemane on the slopes of Mount Zion. The site was identified in the 4th century and recent archaeological evidence seems to confirm the location. It would have been a very lavish home with a large upper chamber where evidently Jesus was tried before the Sanhedrin because, according to verse 66, Peter is down in the courtyard below. So you can imagine this large Mediterranean-style home with a, with a large open 
upper chamber on the second floor and down within the the courtyard walls, there would be different places with various fires, a large place where there would be gathered all of these soldiers, all of the servants, all of the attendants of the Sanhedrin who were upstairs conducting this trial. Verse 55, now the chief priests and the whole council were seeking testimony against Jesus to put him to death, but they found none. For many bore false witness against him, but their testimony did not agree. And some stood up and bore false witness against him, saying, We heard him say, I will destroy this temple that is made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands. Yet even about this their testimony did not agree. According to the Torah, capital punishment requires two corroborating witnesses, and those two testimonies must agree exactly. But on this night... The Sanhedrin could not find any credible testimony with which to condemn Jesus. Even the one substantial charge which they had and laid against Jesus, that he had said, I will destroy this temple made with hands, and in three days I will build another not made with hands, was not reliable enough to convict. Now, in point of fact, Jesus had said that. He had made this statement. It's recorded for us in John chapter 2 and verse 19. It was misunderstood then as a threat against the temple, for the Jews had responded on that occasion by saying, it's taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? John then adds in his gospel that after the resurrection, the disciples understood that Jesus had been speaking about the temple of his body. So Jesus had said what they have accused him of saying, but he wasn't talking about the physical temple. He was talking about the temple of his body, which would be destroyed and raised up again in three days. So the charge was technically true, though in the spirit of it, it was false. It didn't matter. They couldn't even get reliable confirming testimony about that. Watching all of his well-laid plans crumbling before his very eyes was Caiaphas who seems to have orchestrated this entire state of affairs. And so Caiaphas decides that it's time to take matters into his own hands, and he's going to face Jesus head on. Verse 60. And the high priest stood up in the midst and asked Jesus, Have you no answer to make? What is it that these men testify against you? But he remained silent, and he made no answer. Can you hear Isaiah 53? Like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Why doesn't he defend himself? Because all of this is part of the plan. It's part of the scriptures that he determined in the garden he was going to fulfill. He needs to be falsely accused. He needs to be falsely condemned, and he needs, and we need, him to be crucified. The suffering servant is treading the path that has been laid before him. But there is a time to remain silent, and there is a time to speak, and evidently that time had come now, one of the few times in this entire ordeal that Jesus ever speaks. Verse 61b. Again, the high priest asked him, are you the Christ, the son of the blessed? 
And Jesus said, I am. And you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. This was the statement that secured the guilty verdict in the sentence of death. To Caiaphas and the rest of the Sanhedrin, the question must have seemed rhetorical. I mean, the answer, obvious. Of course Jesus was not the Christ, the Son of God. Look at him. How could this pathetic character who stands now before them, silent and shackled, abandoned by his disciples and on trial for a capital crime, possibly be the Messiah? The very thought seemed to them absurd. And so this move by Caiaphas was calculated to evoke an immediate judgment from the Sanhedrin. If Jesus answered in the affirmative, it was so obvious and immediately an example of blasphemy that no further witnesses would be needed. And Jesus did answer in the affirmative, combining Psalm 110, verse 1, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. And Daniel 7.13, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man, and he came to the ancient of days and was presented before him, and to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages shall serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall never pass away, and his kingdom one which shall never be destroyed. In essence, Jesus says to Caiaphas, I am am the Christ, the Son of God, and though you deign to sit in judgment upon me, one day I will return in power and glory, and I will sit in judgment of you. And with that, Caiaphas had what he needed. The high priest tore his garments and said, what further witnesses do we need? You have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving of death. And some began to spit on him and to cover his face and to strike him, saying to him, prophesy. And the guards received him with blows. So with the verdict now rendered, the Sanhedrin moves to publicly shame Jesus, which was a part of the guilt process. They spat on him. They put a garment over his face and they struck him with their fists. And then they told him to prophesy as to who it was that was hitting them. Likewise, the guards beat him savagely. Once again, if we're familiar with the servant songs of Isaiah, we can hear the servant of the Lord saying in Isaiah 50 and verse 6, I gave my back to those who strike and my cheeks to those who pull out the beard. I hid not my face from disgrace and spitting. Okay, but all of the shame and all of the blows and all of the insults and accusations and condemnations heaped upon Jesus in that moment could not have hurt nearly so much as what he knew was transpiring down in the courtyard just below. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene, Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. 
And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them. But again, he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and he wept. Let's begin by acknowledging the fact that Peter lasted longer than the other disciples. I mean, when Peter said, I will never fall away, if even if I must die with you, I will never deny you, he meant every word of it. Though he seems to have initially fled with the rest in verse 50, Peter and John, according to the Gospel of John, followed the arresting party from a distance, eventually arriving at the house of Caiaphas the high priest. But, as we find out, good intentions are not sufficient to overcome the power of temptation. The spirit may be willing, but the flesh is weak. And when faced with the choice of confessing Christ and potentially being put on trial with Christ and being put to death beside Christ, Peter's massive resolve crumbled to the ground like a deck of cards. His good intentions could not stand before the thought of the scourge, the nails, and the cross. Therefore, when outed by a servant girl and some bystanders who recognized his Galilean appearance and his Galilean dialect, Peter denied Christ three times, the last time invoking a curse upon himself if he were lying. Now, this sermon has been largely narrative in its scope. We've just been describing and elaborating upon the events of the night on which Jesus was betrayed. But I don't want to leave you this morning without application. So here's how I want to conclude. I want to look at verses 66 to 72, and I want to draw out three truths from Peter's threefold denial of Christ. Truth number one, the only way to overcome temptation and to confess Christ by word and by deed is to watch and to pray. It is the only way. That's what Jesus had told Peter just a few hours earlier in the Garden of Gethsemane. Watch and pray that you may not enter into temptation, for the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. That this is the point that Mark is making to his Roman audience, and that this is the part, point that the Holy Spirit wants us to get out of this text is clear in the way that Mark formats this section of Scripture. I want you to note the way that he juxtaposes Jesus' temptation and Peter's temptation. One right after the other. Jesus watched and prayed in the garden, and consequently, he made the good confession and he was faithful to the end. Peter failed to watch and pray, but rather slept and was therefore unprepared when temptation struck. And the very same scenario plays out in each and every one of our lives. Even we who do not yet face the choice between confessing Christ and living, 
or confessing Christ and dying and denying Christ and saving our lives. Every sin, every one of them, is an opportunity to confess that Christ is Lord or to deny that Christ is Lord. Titus 1.16 speaks of those who confess Jesus with their mouths, but by their lives they deny him. By resisting temptation and remaining faithful to Christ and his word, we confess that Jesus is Lord and that he is more to be desired than any sin. But by succumbing to temptation, we deny Christ and his word and we confess by our choice that sin is more desirable than Jesus. So the question is, how can we remain faithful in our confession in the face of such temptation? Only by watching and praying. Listen, beloved, the world does not take a day off. The flesh does not take a day off. The devil does not take a day off. Therefore, we cannot take a day off. It is with, not without reason that Jesus told us to end our daily prayers, lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. If you are caught sleeping, you will fall. If you're caught sleeping with regard to the protection of your marriage, you will fall. If you're caught sleeping with regard to your integrity on the job site, you will fall. If you're caught sleeping with regard to the sins of the mouth, which so easily come out, it's so, it's so easy, it feels so good to share those stories that you have no business sharing. And you get into one of those situations where you know my stock in this person's eyes is going to elevate if I can tell them something about someone else that they don't know. And you get into that situation and every fiber of your flesh is wanting to spread that tale. You will fall like dominoes unless you watch and pray. So watch and pray. For the spirit is willing, but the flesh is weak. Second, for the true believer, mark this, for the true believer, the shame of denying Christ is always infinitely worse than the pain of confessing Christ. Always. Many of us know this by painful experience, and it's supremely evident in the account of Peter's threefold denial. Now, most of us did not grow up on a farm, so it may help to give some emotional weight to this passage to know that roosters, they don't crow only once. New Testament scholar William Lane writes the following. He says, quote, Observation over a period of 12 years in Jerusalem has confirmed that the cock crows at three distinct times. First, about a half an hour after midnight a second time about an hour later, and a third time an hour after the second. Each crowing lasts from three to five minutes, after which all is quiet again. Thus, between the first crowing, noted in verse 69, and the second, only an hour had passed, but Peter had been provoked to deny solemnly and emphatically his relationship to Jesus three times. 
end quote. This means that when the cock crowed the second time somewhere around 1.30 a.m. and Peter remembered, it's actually a passive voice verb, he was reminded what Jesus had said, he was reminded of it over and over and over again. Three to five minutes, that second cock crowed. Can you imagine every crow being like a dagger in his very soul? Furthermore, Luke adds the excruciating detail that at that very moment, when the cock crowed for the second time, Jesus was actually being led down into the courtyard, and there through the crowd, their eyes met. Jesus turned, and he looked at Peter. And as their eyes met in that torch-lit courtyard, I want you to imagine the sword of shame that pierced Peter's heart. It is no wonder that he broke down and wept. In that moment and forever afterwards, Peter would have gladly endured the cross rather than the shame that he felt in that moment. In fact, I know this to be true because according to reliable church tradition, some 35 years later, Peter confessed Christ faithfully in Rome, was crucified upside down because he felt himself unworthy to die in the same manner as the Lord. Which brings us to a third and final truth. Grace will have the last word in the life of every disciple. Why? Because our salvation depends ultimately not upon our faithfulness to Christ, but upon his faithfulness to God for us. It is because Jesus triumphed over temptation and was faithful and obedient even to the point of death, even the death of a cross, that his faithless disciples, like us, can be forgiven and restored. Now again, Peter provides us with the paradigm. This forgiveness and restoration is hinted at in Mark 16, 7, where the angel tells the women who came to the empty tomb, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. But go, tell his disciples and Peter that he is going before you to Galilee and there you will see him just as he told you. And what happened in Galilee is well known to us from John chapter 21. Peter and six of the other disciples were out fishing. They caught nothing all night. Suddenly a man on the shore shouts out to them and tells them to cast the nets out on the other side of the boat. They did. They caught an enormous haul of fish. John cries out, it is the Lord. And Peter throws himself into the sea swims straight to Jesus, who neither rebukes him nor rejects him, but welcomes him and prepares a table before him and the rest of his disciples. Following that breakfast, Peter and Jesus go for a walk, and Jesus asks him three times whether Peter loves him, providing Peter with three opportunities to make up for the three denials that he had committed a week earlier. Then Jesus restores Peter to the apostolic ministry, predicts that Peter would be faithful unto death from then on, and issues him one last command, follow me, and he did. So if you are a sheep of Christ, sin and failure will not have the last word in your life. Grace will. 
Why? Because we are not saved by our faithfulness to Christ. We are saved by Christ's faithfulness to God for us. Therefore, no sinner in Jesus should ever, ever hesitate to come to him in repentance and confession, fearing that he will send you away because you've just sinned one time too many. If you are a failure this morning, if you have succumbed to temptation in your life, if guilt clouds around your soul like a thunderstorm, take heart this morning. You should take heart and be encouraged to return to Jesus because he will forgive you. He will restore you. He will save you. That's why he died. And he will sanctify you. He will train you through discipline. He will instruct you even in the midst of your failures. And he will give you the courage and the strength which you need to confess him faithfully to the end. And you will. So do not fear to come to Jesus this morning. Whether for the first time or for the thousandth time. Jesus is not like our earthly fathers, good as they may have been. Earthly fathers have a limit. There's a line that you can cross, and then their affections for you begin to be affected, diminished. It is not like that with your heavenly father. Jesus died to secure his infinite and unlimited affection for you. He loves you. Christ died so that there would therefore now be no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So come in the boldness of that declaration. Come in the confidence of a sufficient atonement through Jesus. And come trusting that if you confess your sins, he will be faithful and just to forgive you of your sins and to cleanse you of all unrighteousness. Come to Jesus, and revel in his unlimited grace.